Welcome to the audio version of the Platinum Trust quarterly report for March 2022. The disclaimers are available on our website at platinum.com.au under terms and conditions. My name is Dean McClelland, one of the investment specialists at Platinum, and I'm going to take you through what I think are some of the highlights of the report, focusing initially on the Platinum International Fund and Platinum Asia Fund. Further to this episode, there are two other resources that some listeners may be interested in. Firstly, an audio version of the macro overview interview between Andrew Clifford and Julian McCormack is available in the journal section of our website. The conversation covers some curious investor behaviour around quality compounders versus cyclical stocks, the real-world economic implications of the Russia-Ukraine war, and the importance of what you own when markets go from bull market to bear market, using the 1999-2000 tech bubble and tech wreck for some context. Secondly, a feature article titled Investing for a Better Tomorrow can be found in the written version of the quarterly report. I'll read the short introduction to pique your interest before moving on to the International Fund. Investing for a Better Tomorrow. The world economy emits around 50 billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent greenhouse gases every year, of which 36 billion tonnes is derived from the burning of fossil fuels. It is now widely accepted the increasing amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is warming our planet, and the current level of emissions needs to reduce over the next two to three decades to stop global temperatures from rising to levels that may cause significant disruptive climate change and economic damage. In order to achieve this, the world will need to transition away from fossil fuel-derived energy consumption. While governments and corporations are leading the way on this front, consumers and investors have a role to play too. So let's move on to the Platinum International Fund. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the implications for markets has been the focus of attention for investors in recent weeks. Not only is the world facing higher energy and food prices as a result of the conflict, there is the possibility of outright shortages of these commodities, potentially creating serious humanitarian as well as economic issues globally. There have also been concerns regarding China's role in the conflict and the potential for sanctions on China if they were seen to be aiding Moscow, either militarily or in avoiding sanctions. Meanwhile, China is dealing with the re-emergence of COVID-19 at a time when the economy is facing its most severe slowdown since its reopening as a result of the common prosperity reforms introduced during 2021. We'll address each of these issues, but before doing so, it is important to understand the economic and market context in which these events are occurring. Prior to the invasion of Ukraine, inflation and interest rates were the key issues. Inflation in much of the developed world was continuing to rise, reaching levels not seen since the early 1980s. While inflation had been rising throughout the second half of 2021, tight labour markets and commodity markets, ahead of a full reopening of economies post the COVID-19 pandemic, made it clear that it would not fade away as a matter of course. The result was a clear change in expectations for the future course of interest rates, most notably in the US, where two-year Treasury yields rose from 0.73% to 2.29% over the quarter. It was not that long ago that increases in interest rates were not expected until 2024. The US economy continued to show strong momentum through the quarter and inflationary pressures have been exacerbated by the conflict. As a result, the Federal Open Market Committee, or FOMC, 
affirmed at their March meeting that they expected numerous interest rate increases to occur over the course of 2022. One now has to overlay this backdrop of inflation and rising interest rates with a number of additional complications. Russia is responsible for approximately 10% of the world's oil production, of which approximately 75% is exported and provides Europe with 34% of its oil imports. Russia is also responsible for supplying 40% of Europe's total gas consumption and around 18% of globally traded volumes of thermal coal. For the moment, Europe has not sanctioned purchases of Russian energy, though some private companies have stopped trading with Russia, and Russia has continued to supply oil and gas since the start of the conflict. However, this has occurred at a time when energy markets were already tight and prices were trending higher. In agricultural commodities, Russia and Ukraine provide significant volumes of globally traded wheat, 29%, corn, 19%, and sunflowers, 33%. In fertiliser, Russia accounts for 20% of global potash supply, and Belarus supplies a further 18%. Russia is also a significant supplier of other commodities, such as steel, palladium, platinum, nickel, iron ore, copper, and aluminium. Given that it is likely that Russia, short of a regime change, will remain a pariah state, it is also likely that energy and food prices will remain at elevated levels for a considerable period of time. The possibility of humanitarian crises in parts of the developing world is significant. And in the developed world, there will be pressure on household budgets, particularly for lower income earners. And of course, headline inflation numbers are more likely to continue their upward trend. In the short term, the conflict has damaged consumer and business confidence, especially in Europe, and indicators are consistent with a sharp slowdown in European economic activity. In the medium term, there are reasons to expect Europe to recover as government spending increases in response to the current situation. We already know that Europe will increase defence spending substantially in years ahead, and there will be significant investment in diversifying energy sources away from Russia, including the region's ongoing push into renewable energy. The full benefits of the reopening post the COVID-19 pandemic have also yet to be experienced. Unless some of the more extreme scenarios play out, such as Russia cutting off energy supplies or the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine, it is likely that increases in government spending, together with the progression to a full reopening post-COVID-19, will underwrite a robust recovery in the European economy. The Chinese economy was struggling in the second half of 2021 as a result of the common prosperity reforms. As we have discussed in previous quarterly reports, the most important of these reforms with respect to economic activity has occurred in the residential property market, which saw a substantial decline in the sale of new apartments with a flow-on effect to construction activity. While policy measures have helped property sales stabilise, the country has now been impacted by the Omicron variant of COVID-19. Having avoided the worst of the pandemic, the arrival of Omicron is likely to effectively bring an end to the country's zero COVID policy. Unfortunately, the relatively low efficacy of the Sinovac vaccine means that the country's health system will now face the same stress and overloading that the rest of the world has experienced over the last two years. The use of lockdowns to slow the spread of the virus will disrupt economic activity and supply chains. The government has indicated they will pursue measures to support the economy and that the pace of economic reform will slow in order to re-establish business confidence. 
The other concern regarding China is its partnership with Russia, affirmed in the days leading up to the invasion of Ukraine. Concerns range from potential military support via the supply of weapons to aiding Russia in avoiding sanctions and the possibility that China could use this moment to invade Taiwan. China's progress over the last 40 years has been a result of being integrated into the global economic system. Undoubtedly, over time, China has sought to bend this system to their advantage. However, it is highly unlikely that the country would do anything to damage the system and their place in it. If anything, the events of recent weeks will have highlighted to the political leaders globally the high level of interdependence of the economic systems of China and the West. Now, moving on to the outlook from the International Fund Commentary. The economic and geopolitical backdrop for markets is the most complex it's been for over 40 years. In such an environment, one might expect that investors would be demanding a significant increase in risk premiums. Yet the world's major stock markets are only down 5 to 10% from their recent highs. The one exception to this is China, which is down 30%. How this unfolds in the stock market is likely to vary greatly by sector and geography. In recent weeks, the stocks that have been heavily impacted by the conflict in Ukraine are those that have been directly affected. These include a range of cyclical businesses from auto-original equipment manufacturers, or OEMs, and component providers, to industrial businesses, European banks, and travel-related businesses. Chinese stocks have suffered a broad and indiscriminate sell-off as a result of geopolitical fears and the weak economic environment in that country. In many cases, stock prices have approached crisis-level valuations seen in previous sell-offs, such as the global financial crisis or March 2020 COVID-19 sell-off. Many of these companies represent excellent value, and we would expect them to perform well in the medium term as Europe and China recover and uncertainties dissipate. The growth stocks that led the bull markets of the last decade are, however, likely to follow a different path. Investors had a preview of this in the early weeks of the March quarter as expectations of interest rate increases continued to rise and the growth stocks experienced significant selling pressure. Investors have subsequently returned to these companies as a place to hide, though we would expect this to be relatively short-lived as interest rates maintain their march higher. In particular, our assessment is that the highly speculative growth stocks, i.e. those with extremely high valuations, often trading in excess of 20 times sales, still have considerable downside. The fund is positioned for this environment with its investments, the longs, predominantly comprising profitable businesses, though with some degree of cyclicality, trading at attractive valuations. The fund also holds short positions in the popular and expensive growth companies. It remains our view that the portfolio should be able to produce good absolute returns over the next three to five years. However, as we said last quarter, 2022 is likely to be an interesting and volatile year for investors as we work our way through the end of a pandemic and exit the era of ever lower interest rates. The conflict in Ukraine has strengthened the case and in the short term, investors should expect ongoing volatility in markets. For a final comment on global markets, I'll quote from the Platinum Global Fund Long Only Report by Clay Smolinski. Clay talks about there are significant new factors on the economic front. Consumers are now facing higher fuel and food prices. The US 30-year mortgage rate has jumped to 4.6%, near the highest in a decade. 
Germany is warning its companies that they may need to ration access to natural gas, and China is returning to mass-scale lockdowns to control COVID. In short, the chances of a slowdown have dramatically increased. And in response, most Western markets, as I've said, have fallen 5 to 10%, and China's fallen 30 The issues of inflation, energy security, and shortages can't be solved with money printing and represent a different challenge than investors have experienced over the last decade. Given this, we are actively positioning the fund to reflect this more cautious outlook. Let's move over to the Platinum Asia Fund, starting with a commentary from Andrew Clifford and Cameron Robertson. The major market events discussed in recent quarterly reports are starting to feel a touch repetitive. While the details change, China has remained consistently controversial as an investment destination and has seemingly managed to fall even more out of favour with investors as the months pass. Most recently, China's ambiguous stance with respect to the Russian invasion of Ukraine appears to be making developed countries increasingly uneasy, prompting reassessments around trade and investment relationships. The sentiment spilled over negatively into the stock market. While there are experts better versed in the geopolitics driving these situations to us, our simple observation would be that China's North Star for the past three decades has been economic development and improvement in living standards for the populations. To be clear, we are not being apologists for China's ambiguity on Ukraine, but we would point to India's similarly underwhelming response to Russia's invasion and the fact that rather being a lightning rod for international censure, as what happened with China, in India's case, this was, this was instead greeted with a flurry of diplomatic missions to try and woo the country over. Meanwhile, the press barely mentions it. Certainly, I would not want to draw a particularly strong parallels between the position of these two countries, but the stark difference in treatment and response, I believe, does highlight a degree of inconsistency which is reflecting some level of temporary emotional predisposition sorry, that Westerners in particular currently have towards these two countries. And those emotional leanings can similarly be observed in market prices. While many events take place across the region in any given quarter that impacts markets, there are two others pertinent to China that are worth mentioning. Firstly, in early March, the US Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, started listing companies in breach of the 2020 Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. Essentially, this is just the latest step in the process of delisting Chinese firms from US exchanges. If the US regulators' demands around oversight of auditing of US-listed Chinese companies, accounts are not met. This event had been well telegraphed and should not come as a surprise to anyone. However, judging from the market's reaction, some investors clearly were caught unawares. The market's reaction was particularly negative in the subsequent days and led to a speech by China's vice premier, essentially saying that the Chinese government had taken note of the market's concerns and would work to operate in a manner that shows greater consideration and support for stock markets on a number of levels. This speech provided significant short-term reassurance to the market and sparked a short, sharp rally, helping to reverse some of the losses. Also, it's perhaps important to clarify at this juncture that a number of our US-listed Chinese company holdings are not materially affected by this, as they also have Hong Kong listings which can be used. However, in the Asia Fund, we do have a small exposure, less than 5% of the fund, to companies that could be more impacted. For those that could be more impacted, generally they have been preparing backup plans 
and by and large, we do not expect our portfolio to be at any great risk from this issue. Turning to other countries in the region during the quarter, it was notable that India's current ruling party, the BJP, won the Uttar Pradesh state elections. Many commentators saw this as a strong signal that the party has regained its popularity after rolling back some ag- agricultural reforms and as such are expecting they could secure a third federal term featuring a reacceleration of reforms and privatisations in the country. South Korea also held their presidential uh, elections during the quarter. It was a tight race with a right-wing candidate winning the position. From a market perspective, he is expected to pass better minority protections for investors in Korean companies, which can be particularly important around takeovers, and these are widely expected to be positive for the majority of shareholders. In terms of broader policy, there is a general perception that this candidate should be relatively business-friendly, but realistically, one of the more notable features of the new president's approach is his aggressive brand of politics, where he's expected to take a more confrontational stance towards North Korea and China, while pursuing closer relationships with the US and Japan. Of course, many interesting things have been happening within the companies in our portfolio over the past three months as well. However, with the region's markets experiencing such large macro-driven moves, we felt it appropriate to discuss those in more detail this time. Hopefully next quarter, we can spend more time sharing details around some of our portfolio companies as company and industry analysis continues to be where we spend the majority of our time and effort. Very quickly to the outlook for the Asia Fund. While many Asian countries appear to be facing slightly more challenging short-term economic conditions as inflation and supply chain disruptions bite, commensurately low valuations can be found and the long-term opportunity for the region remains enticing. As such, we continue to believe the setup for longer-term investors remains attractive, and despite, or perhaps even because of, weaker markets in recent months, are increasingly enthusiastic about the return prospects for the portfolio. We'll move on from the market commentary to talk about some of the specific stocks that are mentioned across the portfolios. One company that gets mentioned a number of times is Wizz Air. Buying an airline whilst oil prices are rocketing may seem counterintuitive, but there are several reasons why Wiz can be a much larger business three to five years out. Firstly, we're generally interested in travel, as the industry is still suppressed by COVID and there is scope to see a boom in travel spending as people prioritise a holiday or visiting family. Indeed, we are seeing evidence of this building, with hotel room rates in the US now trending 20% higher than pre-COVID prices. Secondly, Wiz operates an ultra-low-cost carrier business model, utilising young staff sourced from lower-cost Central European countries and operating one of Europe's youngest and most efficient plane fleets. As a result, Wiz is Europe's lowest-cost airline, a position it holds with Ryanair. Thanks to the European Union Open Skies Agreement, the bulk of European airspace operates like it would within Australia or the US with national borders removed and carriers fleet free to fly to whatever city pairs they wish. What's different to Australia and the US is the structure of the EU airline market, with a significant amount of capacity still held by inefficient, high-cost, legacy, state-run airlines, a situation particularly true in Wizz's central European home market. The industry maximum of, of there is never a demand problem for the airline with the cheapest seats has generally rung true in practice, with airlines like Wizz and Ryanair being able to consistently expand and push out higher-cost competitors. 
Wiz operates a fleet of 150 aircraft a day, but has an order book of 400 more Airbus A321neo aircraft to be delivered over the next eight years. The transition of the fleet to the A321neos will further extend Wiz's cost advantage over its peers, many of whom delayed their order books due to COVID. The A321neo effectively costs the same to run as the smaller A320 via a 15% less fuel burn, but carries an additional 59 passengers effectively for free. The 50% fall in Wizz's share price post the invasion gave us a great opportunity to buy or add at a valuation of 13 times what the airline made in 2019, pre-COVID. The 2019 profit result was generated from a fleet of 100 planes, and with Wizz's larger fleet size, there is the prospect of Wizz's earnings to be two to three times higher in the future. That commentary comes from the Platinum Global Fund Long Only. There's one other stock that gets mentioned there as well, which is Raiffeisen Bank International. It's a a position in the fund, and it's a position in a number of the funds, which fell 50% over the quarter. Raiffeisen is an Austrian bank with major banking positions across Central and Eastern Europe, and an earnings base that is effectively 60% Austria and Central Europe, Czech, Hungary and Slovakia, and 40% Russia, Ukraine and Belarus. If we assume Raiffeisen's Russia, Ukraine and Belarus operations are worth zero, i.e. they effectively hand them over to the respective central banks, we are left with a market cap of about 4.1 billion euros, backed by 850 million euros of net profit and 10 billion euros of equity. This produces a valuation of five times or 0.4 times book, respectively a level hard not to describe as cheap. Given a number of Raiffeisen's central European positions are attractive acquisition targets and it recently sold its small Bulgarian operations to KBC Bank for 1 billion euros at a multiple of 14 times earnings and two times book, there is a good case to maintaining our holding for now. As you'd expect, the commentary from the Platinum European Fund uh, focuses quite a lot on the Russia-Ukraine war, and there's more details there, some of which we've already spoken about from the international uh, fund commentary. In the European Fund portfolio, uh, there's talk about re-initiating a position in Infineon Technologies, the leading German manufacturer of discrete power semiconductor chips. High-voltage power semiconductors is an interesting sector as the transition to electric vehicles will accelerate demand for these chips over, coming dec- over the coming decade. Sorry. High-voltage power semiconductor content in electric vehicles is greater than six times that in an internal combustion engine vehicle. Moreover, Infineon also benefits from the proliferation of electric vehicle charging stations, renewable generators and battery storage facilities. Power semiconductors are an attractive picks and shovels type trade in the decarbonisation gold rush. Now, moving over to the Platinum Japan Fund, where portfolio manager Jamie Hulse talks of cost increases, broader supply chain issues and uh, a weaker yen. In the fund, he says, uh, we continue to prefer companies that are well-placed to deal with cost inflation or positions where we and or others may be effective in attempts to encourage management to behave in a more more commercial manner. One specific business that Jamie talks about is uh, Asahi. It's a a Japanese brewer, uh, a position that was added 
to in February, prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as the business began to benefit from reopening trends. We then added further at similar levels during the sell-off after the invasion, as investors sold the stock on fears around its Eastern Europe exposure and spikes in input costs such as aluminium and barley. Asahi has expanded globally via aggressive M&A and now has a strong and balanced portfolio of nicely profitable and growing premium beer brands across Europe and in Australia to complement its dominant Japanese business. It benefits from ongoing equalisation of alcohol taxes in Japan that are currently unfavourable to its portfolio mix and will likely see a boost to its business when Japan returns to a post-pandemic normal. Despite these attributes, it remains the cheapest global brewer, coloured by the negative perception of a home market with declining volumes. We view this opportunity favourably. Jamie Holtz also manages the Platinum International Brands Fund. And some of you will know that the the fund did hold some Russian positions uh, at the time of the Russian invasion. And Jamie goes into detail to talk about those. The fund held a position of 6.1% in two Russian stocks immediately prior to the invasion. These were TCS Group at 3.2% and Spurbank Russia at 2.9%. Our assessment was that these would provide attractive investments should an invasion not occur, or should there be a speedy resolution to a conflict with a stern but ultimately manageable Western response. We viewed these two scenarios together as more likely than what has in fact eventuated, a bloody and drawn-out conflict with a severe Western response and financial market reaction. We marked down the value of our holding in London-listed Russian financial super app TCS Group to zero after the London Stock Exchange suspended trading in Russian Global Depository Receipts, GDRs, including TCS. The Moscow Stock Exchange was closed for an extended period and a Russian presidential order barred foreigners from selling Russian assets. We also suffered a large loss in our position in Spurbank in the quarter, with the stock falling 75% to our exit point. We sold into the brief post-invasion relief rally on 25 February that was triggered by the initial sanctions that were less stringent than the market had feared. We sold Spurbank while keeping TCS, as with the tide of Western opinion becoming clear, Spurbank as a state-owned enterprise, or SOE, was, we felt, at much greater risk of further sanctions, including potentially forced divestment by Western investors at even lower prices. There was a precedent for such action, with the US sanctioning of various state-owned Chinese companies in 2021. Following the discovery of alleged atrocities in Bukha, the US has announced a ban on all new investment in Russia and the imposition of full blocking sanctions on Spurbank, freezing all of Spurbank's assets in the US financial system, and the prohibition of US persons from doing business with Spurbank. Conversely, TCS remains unsanctioned at this point. We also spoke about Raiffeisen Bank earlier in this uh, audio version, uh, and Jamie does mention that as one of the uh, detractors from the fund over the quarter. Now, moving on to some comments for the Platinum International Healthcare Fund. Uh, Dr. Bianca Ogden provides some commentary that the indiscriminate sell-off in biotech stocks accelerated in the March quarter, which had a significant effect on the fund's performance. In contrast, pharmaceutical companies held up well providing a positive contribution to the fund's performance. The SPDR S&P Biotech ETF, or XBI as we've been referring to it quite a lot, fell 20% over the quarter. The spread between biotechs and the S&P 500 index now resembles that of the post-genomics bubble in 2001, 
with the biotech sector lagging the performance of the broader market by around 60% over the past 12 months. Following a difficult year, many biotech companies are now valued below the cash held on their balance sheets, and pipelines are being reprioritised in order to extend cash runways. Large companies with very strong balance sheets remain on the sidelines when it comes to making outright acquisitions, opting for partnerships instead. Given some of the very depressed valuations, it is not surprising that acquisition targets are equally reluctant to sell their businesses and surrender long-term value. New listings have come to a virtual standstill, while we are starting to see the private market valuations at least stagnate from the incredible levels reached in 2021. The majority of large life science tool companies remain at elevated valuations, while supply chain issues and inflation have added pressure to medical device companies. The escalation in geopolitical tensions has added to the risk-averse sentiment and served to increase investors' focus on energy and commodities. One stock in in particular that Bianca uh, writes about is Galapagos. Galapagos is one of the best finance biotech companies globally, with about 4.7 billion euros in cash on their balance sheet. The company has had various setbacks, but fundamentally has highly skilled and experienced scientists. Most importantly, from 1 April 2022, Dr. Paul Stoffels will be taking the helm as the new CEO. He has been a key figure at Johnson & Johnson Pharmaceuticals, shaping it into what it is today. He has known Galapagos since its formation in 2002 via a joint venture between Crucell, which is now a Johnson & Johnson company and a previous investment in the fund, and Tebotech, now also a Johnson & Johnson company. Stoffels was a co-founder of Tebotech and has deep knowledge of biotechs, a skill set that will allow him to deploy Galapagos's cash wisely for external opportunities. In terms of the outlook, it might be important for investors in the fund to understand, particularly at this time, investing in biotechs is not for the weak-hearted. It is an easy ride when everyone is on board and in the mood to simply follow a theme. But the sentiment changes quickly when there's a string of negative clinical trial announcements coupled with geopolitical instability, not to mention the fact that the previous years have been a biotech boom. However, that is often exactly the time to invest. The fundamentals of this sector have not changed in our view. Biotech is crucial to the development of new therapeutics and enhancing our quality of life. Last year, 33 out of 50 new drug approvals in the US originated at biotech companies. Today, many investors are expecting gloomy times ahead for biotech companies, as financing is harder to come by. This, however, will also bring discipline back to the sector, weeding out companies with weaker projects. We will see consolidation in the biotech sector, but that alone will not change long-term sentiment. The crucial factor will be product approvals and sales growth with earnings acceleration to follow. We launched the Platinum International Healthcare Fund in 2003 when biotech was out of favour and in the doldrums. Today is no different in our view and presents a good opportunity to make great investments valued way too cheaply and increase our exposure to this exciting and innovative sector. And finally, we move to some commentary from Alex Barbie, the portfolio manager from our International Technology Fund. Now, after a stellar performance in 2021, technology stocks started 2022 on a more somber note. The NASDAQ 100 tech sector index returned minus 13% for the quarter, with weakness spread across all subsectors of the technology space. 
The semiconductor sector index was also down 13% for the quarter as investors started worrying about a potential slowdown in economic growth. Software stocks suffered as well as investors realised the risks of owning extremely highly valued names just as the US Federal Reserve started tightening monetary policy to fight rampant inflation. Alex goes into some detail talking about uh, a company called Meta Platforms, which many of you will probably uh, know as formerly known as Facebook. Investors reacted negatively to its latest quarterly results. Moderate revenue growth forecasts for the current year were below investors' expectations, while the company has aggressively stepped up its expenses in its new Facebook Reality Labs, or Metaverse. As people have diverted their attention to new, large social platforms based on short video interactions, e.g. TikTok, Meta has shifted engagement towards similar formats by launching new products. Already very successful on Instagram, Reels has now been extended to the core Facebook app. Reels are fun and inspiring short videos consisting of music, audio, augmented reality effects, text overlays and more that users can now create on the Facebook app. They can be shared with friends and fans in their core newsfeed and to new audiences in a dedicated Reels section on Facebook and they should help to increase users' engagement. Format transitions, however, tend to impact negatively on monetization in the short term. As ads published in the new format initially do not earn the same amount of dollars per view, click, contact, while advertisers need to familiarize themselves with it. Facebook previously had to navigate through similar transitions from desktop to mobile newsfeed, from text to photos, and more recently from newsfeed to stories, another successful format. The company thinks they can successfully make the transition again and pointed out that Reels is now the biggest driver of engagement growth with Instagram. The other headwind faced by Meta is the change to Apple's privacy and data collection policy that requires apps to ask permission to track users' data. This has reduced Meta's ability to effectively target advertising audiences and measure the efficacy of its campaigns. Interestingly, this did not impact Google in the same way, as Apple's policy did not apply to search through a browser. Meta estimates that the impact on revenue is US $10 billion on an annualised basis, around 7 to 8%, in line with our forecast. The company is working on solutions to adapt the platform to the new reality, and while it will take a while to improve, we're confident that the strength of the core business remains on solid ground. Meta remains attractive at a current valuation of 11.1 times historic price to cash flow. And that concludes the audio version of the quarterly report. We've covered a range of topics and a number of the stocks in focus. As mentioned at the start, you may also be interested in the macro overview audio interview with Andrew Clifford and Julie McCormack. Please do get in touch if you'd like more information or to provide feedback. The email address is invest at platinum.com.au. We'd love to talk to you further about investing. Thank you for listening. All the best.